You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. The year is 1999, and it's just nearly just short a month after Christmas in January 23rd. Australian missionary who has been in India now for 30 years has been doing missionary work with the lepers there in his community. And in in a lot of communities in India, those that are in poverty or sick, they're disenfranchised as as many in in Hinduism believe that they are receiving their just reward for a former life and they're receiving their just karma. But a lot of Christians, they go in and, and they see these people as valued, important, loved creations of God. And so Graham Staines moved from Australia as a young missionary to India, been serving there 30 years, now married and has three children, uh, and he has a specific ministry to Indian lepers. He likes to do jungle camps. That means he goes to the jungles and he has VBS Bible camps for the week with some of these villages in the surrounding areas. And he's at one of those camps with two of his young boys, his son Philip, who's 10 years old, and Timothy, who's six years old. They begin to do a jungle camp and in the evenings they spend the night sleeping in their Jeep. Well, one night, an angry mob attacked their vehicle while they were asleep with bats and clubs and spears, and they began to ba- uh, break the windows and stab at them in the car. And then they poured gasoline on the car, and they torched the car, and they murdered that father and his two sons, uh, over a crowd of a 100, burned alive. When the fire cooled, They were able to look inside the car and the charred body of Graham was wrapped around the arms of his son, Philip and Timothy. His wife, Gladys, was asked to respond to this violent crime of persecution against Christians. That was their only crime. They were Christians preaching the gospel in a predominantly Hindu village. And those that were local, politically motivated, and, and, and persecution towards Christians, they, they murdered them. And asked, what do you think about this? Gladys, his wife, responded publicly with, with peace and forgiveness for those that were the accused murderers. And as all of India listened, they asked, how can you respond with such hope and love for these people who killed your family? Front page of every newspaper in India in February of 1999, she says this, quote, I have only one message for the people of India. She says, I am not bitter, neither am I angry, but I have one great desire that each citizen of this country would establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and give their life, who gave their life for their sins. She said, let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. After this event, she actually remained in India for many more years, and this village where she cared for her and her husband, cared for the lepers, she actually was able to transform into a hospital for those that were lepers. And and her story in this persecution against Christians was actually portrayed in several movies. One of them came out with Stephen Baldwin playing uh, Graham Staines in a movie last year called The Least of These. 
This story happens every day. As 11 Christians every day are put to death simply because they are Christian. 230 million Christians are persecuted every year. Millions are additionally imprisoned and arrested simply because they are Christians. This is the environment that Peter is writing to in the early church. We've had more death and more violence and more murders against Christians in the last 30 years than in the first 300 years of the early church. But this is the culture in which Peter is writing when he writes this letter to a group of Christians who, are, who have lost their loved ones, many of them murdered and burned alive in Rome. Now they're being chased from their homes, finding themselves in new communities and in villages where they were misunderstood and persecuted. Paul writes this. He says, listen, remember, you're being watched. And live a life that points to Christ. Live with graciousness and humility and with respect. Gain the right to speak into their lives. They're going to hate you, but be and live different. And know this, that sometimes doing the right thing will, will sometimes bring pain. He says this in 1 uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. I tell you, I want to talk to you today about pain and suffering again. And I want to talk to you about the myth that God wants you happy we need to have a new attitude about suffering, a new perspective. Listen, sometimes our attitude about our trials and our suffering and our problems and our storms keep us from growing. And some of you, you're in the midst of a storm and you're just angry and you're wondering, when is that God ever going to bring you out? Listen, sometimes it's your attitude about that storm that is keeping you in that storm. Last week, we ended on verse 6. We're going verse by verse. Now, I want to mention verse 7 because today we're going to skip 7 to 11, and we're going to talk about them next week. So we're not, we're not skipping it for good. We're just skipping it for this week because we're going to jump to verse 12. But I want to point out something about what we're skipping. Look at this verse. This is verse 7. He begins with, the end <laughs> of all things is near. What a heavy-duty verse, right? The end is near, right? And so he wrote this 2,000 years ago, and somebody might be thinking uh, he was wrong. Was Peter wrong? 2,000 years ago, the end didn't come. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at this passage next Sunday, 7 through 11, and we're going to understand what he's saying. And I want you to know this. Next week, we're going to talk about living for Christ in sight of the end, when the end is in sight, all right? So living for Christ when the end is in sight. And, and uh, I want to challenge you. We're going to take a look at this very difficult, often misunderstood passage, verses 7 through 11. Today we're going to jump down to verse 12. Now before we jump into verse 12, I want to talk to you about something, and that is our challenges with this, what I call a constant craving inside. We spend our whole life pursuing something. You know, you're born hungry. You're born hungry. The second you're born, you want food, right? And then after you have food, guess what? You're hungry again because no amount of food will ever satisfy the hunger for more food. It's just a seasonal, temporary, partial, you know, 
filling that is not permanent or eternal. We are always going to be hungry in this life. We're born with a constant craving. And this craving isn't just for food. It's a craving for satisfaction. It's a craving for happiness. And in our pursuit, this constant craving to be happy, we pursue careers, adventure, entertainment, pleasure, prominence, popularity, notoriety, family, money, knowledge, health, a reputation, a legacy. We're born hungry from day one, and we're seeking to fill that hole in our soul. And no matter what we do, we just can't seem to be satisfied. Listen, when we pursue these things alone, we'll always end up empty. We'll always end up exhausted and frustrated and unsatisfied. I have a question for you today. What are you craving today? What are you chasing today? What are you thirsty for today? You know, we look for happiness in two categories, and these are the two that that are on the screen right now. Two categories that we often try to fill that hunger with, and that is cultural things and spiritual things. For instance, when it comes to cultural things, it's we, we try to find happiness in our possessions. Maybe this new outfit will make me feel good about myself. Maybe this jewelry will give me that, that, that sparkle that I think I need. Uh, maybe this gadget. Man, I love gadgets. I'm a tech nerd, and, and I got me the Note 10 just a few months ago, but um, the Galaxy 20 is about, is about to be out, and, and I'm like, maybe I should trade out my, my Note 10, which I like. I like my Note 10. It's got a pen. It's great. And, and I'm an Android person, sorry. Uh, iPhone people, um, they're great for kids and seniors, so that's, that's great. <laughs> it's a joke. <laughs> but uh, it's a joke. But, uh, you know, I think maybe, maybe if I just, you know, because I think somehow I'm going to be satisfied with the next one. But it's, I'm never going to be satisfied. The gadgets, the cars, maybe the next car, a better car. A car that has a touch screen would be great than mine. A car that has remote, man, I drove for years in a car that had manual locks, you know, like I, kids would get in my car, like, how do you lock, how do you open the door? How do you get, what do you, like, boom, and like, what? Where's the button? There's no button. So some of you think, maybe if I just get a better car, man, my life will be happy. I'll be fulfilled with more stuff, cultural things like places. Maybe if I just live in a better neighborhood, could, could move to a better state, uh, you know, have a better house, you know, maybe that vacation, man, I just, I just need to get away, you know. But my life would be best if I could just get some rest and get away. Man, go to Fiji, you know, uh, some trip, some exotic beach, some location, you know. I love Colorado. And next week, some of you, we have a church trip we do every spring, and, and we go to Colorado. Many of you are going with us. We're leaving next Sunday night. And I tell you what, I love Colorado. And I think, man, if I I could just get to the top of that mountain and just breathe it all in and take a look. My life would be happy. And then I ski down and it's time to go home. And I'm not happy. I want to go back again. Because the location will not fix this, this whole, this destination problem that I have. And you think, well, it's my dream to go to fill in the blank. Man, if I could just go there, this bucket list of places to go and things to do, maybe I'll be happy. But it's not our possessions, it's not our places, or it's our people. You think, maybe if I just was not single, 
Maybe if I just uh, had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a husband or wife, or a different husband, a different wife, if I had a different circumstance, you know, if I could have someone like them, if I could have someone uh, who is, you know, who is maybe looked a different way or acted a different way, maybe like a celebrity or was more athletic or someone who, uh, just a friend, if I just had a person in my life, I'd be happy. And then you get that person, you find out no person can fill the hole in your soul because we're always going to be hungry unless we find satisfaction in the right thing. So some people, they turn to not just cultural things, they turn to spiritual things. And they, they're thinking, man, a popular thought, you know, a book, you know, Oprah, Dr. Phil, positive thinking, positive confession, you know, you know, you're in charge of your own destiny. You create your own circumstances. You know, you only have a bad day because you want a bad day. You don't have a bad day. You create a good day. And it's this whole idea that you can create your destiny you're in control of everything that happens to you. And, and if you just stay positive, be positive, move forward, you can make it happen. Popular thought has also creeped into popular religion. We have false faiths around the world that they, they, they try to tell you the answer is not in any kind of pleasure, but the denial of all pleasure to be, you know, to live in, in some kind of, you know, monastery up in the mountains and to not speak or to not have any friends or to not experience anything good at all or to find yourself in the center of nothingness just to, to meditate into oblivion, into void. And that's going to be peace. But sometimes this popular thought and false faith also works its way into popular Christianity, where there's a pursuit of pleasure and a positive confession and thinking even in the church. But you see, these are not working. The number one drug prescription category in the United States is antidepressants. If you're on one today, this is in no way uh, um, targeted towards you, but this is the reality that, that you're not alone in this pursuit. 118 million people right now are on antidepressants. That's 25% of all adults in America are on antidepressants. 8% of young people are on antidepressants. We've had in the last 10 years a 48% increase in prescriptions for antidepressants. Here's the point. Our current pursuit of happiness is not going well. It's not working. To this, Peter is writing in verse 12 when he says, don't be surprised at the fiery or the burning, the difficult ordeals that come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I want you to write this down. Don't be surprised when you're not happy. When trials, when storms, when persecution, don't be surprised as if something strange is happening to you. Have you ever felt like everything is just piling up? Man, it's like, I, got, I don't think I can handle one more thing. And then you go to work and it's one more thing. You know, it's a family member, it's you, it's your health, it's your, it's your finances, it's just going. Or maybe it's the other way. Everything you try fails. And this isn't working. You try this and this doesn't work. And this is like, God, when am I, when do I get a break? You know, God, where are you? And then you pray because many of you are Christians and you love the Lord. So you pray and you pray and you pray and nothing's changing. You think, God, you're mean, you're angry. You wonder, where are you? How could you let this happen. Notice that word. He says, 
as though some strange things were happening to you. You see, happiness is based on what happens to you. And the problem is, happiness is at the mercy of what's happening in our life. And we're only happy when the circumstances are right. And so when bad things happen, there goes our happiness. And he says, don't be surprised when things that are bad are happening. Listen, God never promised health, wealth, and good relationships. He never promised a pain-free, no despair, trial-free life in this life. In fact, if you read the Bible, very few people in the Bible ever experienced any of these things. Jesus himself did not. Jesus not only said that it would happen, but he promised. He said, trouble will follow my followers. He says, it's going to come. It will happen. Be prepared, John 15 and John 16. Peter is echoing this right now. He says, listen, Jesus suffered. So will we. Don't be surprised. Expect it. And I have a question for you today. Are you ready for it? Reality check. Christians experience pain just like everybody else. If I were to stumble and trip off this, I wouldn't go like, I'm a Christian. I don't feel pain. You know, know, I'm not a weeble wobble. Now, if I fall off and the bone breaks and sticks out of my leg, I'm going to be screaming and might even shed a tear or two. I don't know. Or maybe I'd man up and go, I'm fine. You know, but I would feel pain just like anybody else. Whether you're a Christian or not, pain happens. And you know what? When, When I love somebody and they pass away, my pain is not less than somebody who is not a Christian. My pain is the same when I experience loss of someone I love. But Paul says we mourn, but we mourn differently. We mourn, we're sad, we grieve, we cry, but with a hope. He's not saying we don't cry. He's not saying we don't feel pain. He's saying, but we have pain with a hope. See, Christians, we will experience pain just like everyone else. Plus, Peter says, not only we will experience the pain that the world experiences, he says, plus, if you're a Christian, you will be attacked for following Jesus. And you'll never quite fit in. You know, if you're sitting on the bench at a football game on the sidelines, enjoying yourself, eating popcorn, you know, it's a safe place. But the second you step onto the field and that ball is in your hand, you are the enemy of the opposing side. And every person on the opposing side has got their eyes on you to bring you down. Think about it this way. Say you join the army and you're, you, you go overseas and all of a sudden you find yourself in the midst of a battle fight. And you're like, pew, pew, and your bullets are blazing. Ah, oh, got me in the arm. And you're running inside and you're like, it hurts, it hurts. They're shooting at us out there and they're using real bullets. That's not fair. Your captain will go, listen, what'd you expect, man? What did you, why are you surprised you joined the army? Listen, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you are enlisted in an army, an army of love and compassion, but there is an enemy and his bullets are real and his bullets are spiritual and you have the ball and the opposing side has got their eyes on you. And Peter says, listen, expect, don't be surprised when they come to bring you down. 
I want you to write this down. Our surprise of suffering and trials exposes erroneous expectations. But I thought God's plan for me was to feel loved and to be happy. It's a message that feels good. It's a message that seems right. It's in our declaration of independence that we are all given these inalienable rights and that we have this, this freedom to pursue, to, that we're given life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. By the way, our, our declaration only says a guarantee of life and liberty. It doesn't guarantee happiness. It says we're, we're, we're free to chase it. But the problem is we'll never catch it. We'll never find it. Many of you think, well, that's what God came into the plan. He, he wants us to, to be happy. He wants us to be loved and to be happy. And, and God wants me happy. Listen, many affirm different lifestyle choices, concluding, well, God loves me and he just wants me to be happy. And if I love this person, how can that be wrong? And if I'm happy, how can it be wrong? Because there's a false assumption that God wants you to be happy. That's a dangerous myth, and yet one of the most common in American churches today. Joel Osteen said this in Texas Monthly a while back. He attributes all of his success to a positive message of thinking. He says this, quote, God created you, every person, to be victorious in every area of life. Well, that's not the Bible. Christians sadly adopt pop culture pursuits of happiness. And here's just a thought. Just because it's in a Christian store or on Christian radio or in a, quote, Christian book or on a show or podcast or YouTube channel, it doesn't make it true. There are false expectations in this myth of happiness. And these false expectations are that God wants me to be happy. Another one is that God only has good things in store for me in this life. That's a false expectation. Another false expectation that God promises me to be happy happily ever after in my marriage. Listen, the New Testament, it talks about marriage a lot. And every time it talks about it, it's talking about the challenges and the struggles of being married. In fact, Peter, in this same letter in chapter three, beginning with verse one, is talking to Christians who are struggling in their marriage. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you'll have a happily ever after marriage. That's a false expectation. Another one is that God promises me to always be healed and to have a health-free life, a healthy life here. Well, that's a false expectation and not biblical. Another one is God wants me to always enjoy this life and to prosper in everything that I do. These are false expectations. This is also known as the theology of happiness. Some people have also referred to it as the prosperity gospel. But this theology of, of happiness is dangerous and it's prevalent in a lot of American churches. You won't find this, by the way, around the world where Christians are on the front lines in their faith. You won't find this in the Indian churches. You won't find this in the Chinese churches, in the South American churches who are struggling under great persecution. You won't find this in the African Christians because this is very American, self-censored, narcissistic Christianity. The somehow, the some ray, for some reason, God is here for me. See, this elevates us to the point where God is here to serve us rather than that we the truth is, is that we are here to serve God 
I think in 1 Timothy, uh, sorry, 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, he says, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn away from the truth and turn aside to myths. One of those is that God promises you happiness in this life. When you have the expectation of God always making you happy, you end up treating him like some celestial Santa Claus or a venerable vending machine. And if he doesn't deliver, if I pull that lever and I don't get what I want, or if my present is not under the tree of life, then we get disappointed and we get frustrated or we get angry with God. Now, I want you to understand, God is good. He's really good. He's a good dad. He's a good father who gives good gifts to his kids. You know, like many of you who are parents, you know, you've said this, I just want my kids to be happy. You know, I've got a daughter that just turned 19 today and another daughter that's 21. And, and we, we often think, well, I just want my kids to be happy. Well, really? How far are you willing to go for them to be happy? Because if the goal is for them to be happy, sometimes we're willing to put up with unhealthy behavior because we want them happy, or unhealthy choices because we want them happy, or to be self-destructive because we want them to be happy. Listen, I want something more for my kids than for them to be happy. I want them to be fulfilled. We have a good, perfect father who has more than happiness for you. Verse 12, he says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. Turn to somebody and say, test. That has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening. Here's number two, don't be surprised when you're tested. Don't be surprised when it's exam day. There, there are tests in the Bible. The, God will test us. Now, understand this. God does not test us for his sake. He tests us for our sake and for others to see Christ in us for their sake. This is important because God never tests us to see if you're truly a Christian he tests us so that you can have confidence in who you are in Christ and that the world might see that you are for real. This is not for his sake. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 1. We talked about this a, a few weeks back when we were in chapter 1 where Peter says the trials test the authenticity of our faith. In Luke 22, Jesus approaches Peter. Imagine if you're Peter when Jesus said this and he says, hey, Peter, Heads up, Satan came to me and wanted to sift you like flour. I said it was okay. He's going to test you, but you're going to come out better on the other side. Heads up. You're right. It's like, Jesus, no. Why would you allow him to test me? Because you're going to be better on the other side. Job chapter 1, one of the strangest chapters in all of the Bible. Job, who loves God, honors God, who is one of the few men who truly honored God in his life. Satan comes to God in Job chapter one, and the story says, the Satan says, Job only loves you because life is sweet. 
life is good. He's only happy because of all the things that are happening to him. He has a great family, great kids, great job, great life, great health. And he says, I bet that if Job had all those things taken away, that he would curse you and deny you. And God says, all right, let's test him. I give you permission to take it all away. Job chapter 1, God allows it. He couldn't have access to Job without God's permission. Job asked to test him. Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8 tells us this parable of the four soils where Jesus talks about the four types of hearts where the word of God falls. And there's the hard, like concrete heart. If I would drop seeds on this, it would never penetrate. And he says there's a rocky soil, there's a thorny soil, and then there's a fresh, you know, uh, soil that is, that is fresh and ready to receive, that is ready for growth. But I want you to notice soil number two is a shallow, rocky soil. And he says it begins to grow, but as soon as persecution comes, as soon as trials come, as soon as the tests of life come, it dies. Soil number two did not pass the test. James chapter 1, verse 12 James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. How do I know you're for real? If you are a Christian, if you're not, I'm glad you're here today. Thanks for eavesdropping on this challenge to Christians, and I want you to hear this with your heart open too. God loves you. But if you're a Christian, how do I know you're the real deal? How do I know anybody in this room is real? You know, I can hope that you know Jesus. I can hope that when you say I'm a Christian, that I hope that you are. You know, I think of George and Swaste who sat, usually sat right there next to you, Lucy. A month and a half ago, he passed away, but it wasn't without nearly three years of a, of a, of a battle with cancer, pain, anguish, tears. He would struggle to get here, sometimes not even able to get dressed. He would come to church in his pajamas because he wanted to be in the house of the Lord. He wanted to worship. He wanted to be in church with his family. If he could get in the car, he made it. Over the last couple of months, as it progressed, he was in and out of the hospital. He was still getting here as often as he could get out of the house physically and be here because he wanted to be here. He wanted to worship the Lord, but when he wasn't here, he still praised the Lord, and he still thanked the Lord, and he still prayed to the Lord and loved on the Lord faithfully. And you know what? God knew he was the real deal, but you know what I saw? I saw the real deal. That testing was for our benefit so that we could see what true faith looks like. And I think of guys like George and those that are persecuted around the world and those that are going through struggles and maybe in this room who you don't give up because of the testing. It has proven the authenticity of your faith for those around you. So listen, don't be surprised when you're testing or when you're tested. The test is coming. Don't be surprised. Verse 13, he says, in the middle of this testing, he says, but rejoice. Everybody say rejoice. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings. He's not saying rejoice because of the sufferings. He's saying rejoice because the sufferings reflect a relationship with God. 
If you are a Christian, man, you sell, you can rejoice in the sufferings because you're like, you know what? My Lord suffered. And if I can get just a little glimpse or an idea of what he went through, man, thank you, Jesus. If you went through greater things for me, God, I can endure this and be faithful to you. He says we rejoice in as much as we participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed. Overjoyed. When the glory, when his glory is revealed. Ultimately, I want you to write this down. Ultimately in this life, God does not want us to know happiness, but he wants us to know joy. While happiness relies on what happens, joy is unmoved by our circumstances because it relies on what is inside. While happiness relies on what happens, joy relies on what has happened at the cross. Romans 14, verse 17, Paul says this, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, the pleasures of life, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He says, that's what the kingdom of God is about. It's not about pleasure, though there's nothing wrong with pleasures. God gives us good things, and he, he allows us to experience joy and happiness. But he says the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He says later in the letter, in, in Romans 15, 13, he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. When does that joy and peace come? As you trust in him. Not when the circumstances are right. Not when everything aligns and your goals are achieved and things go as planned, but as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joy comes from connecting with the creator. Joy is knowing that you are in the center of God's will because God ultimately knows what will bring you joy and bring you even happiness. So you can try to pursue and to fulfill things and fill that hole in your soul with, with things and stuff and people and possessions, but God only knows what truly will satisfy your heart. Verse 13, he says, so that you may be overjoyed with his glory that is to be revealed. I want you to write this down. We are created to be satisfied by only one thing. See, God has put eternity in our hearts. We are born with a craving and with an inconsolable longing. And we will never find in this life satisfaction and fulfillment in the possessions and people and pursuits of this life. There's only one thing that can satisfy our heart because we have an inconsolable longing, a constant craving that can only be found and only be fulfilled at his glorious return. See, we're made by God, and we are made for God, for his glory and for his will. We were created to reflect him in all of our life, and we will never be truly satisfied until we align our will with the will of God and his purpose for our life. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, verse 6, and he's speaking from a passage known as the Beatitudes. I did a series on the Beatitudes last year. You can find it online. I suggest that you go through it maybe in the next few weeks. Verse 6, he says, blessed are those who hunger and 
thirst after righteousness. Their righteousness is the righteousness of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after the righteousness of God. For they will be filled. Other translations say appropriately, they will be satisfied. The word blessed, by the way, is the word mariakeos, which means more than happy. So you're going to be more than happy. You're going to have the sense of joy that the world can't take away and nothing the world can give you. You'll be more than happy, truly blessed when you are hungry and thirsty for God. Only then, Jesus says, will you be satisfied. Everything else will leave you hungry. See, we tend to turn good things into God things, meaning little case G idols. We tend to turn good things like education, goals, success, fitness, and even family into God things, into idols. Idols are pursuits we chase and hunger far above Jesus because we want to be happy. And some of you have idols of good things in your life because you think somehow that person, scenario, possession, you know, family, whatever, education, goal will make you happy. Listen, it won't, you'll still will not be happy. You'll still will feel empty. Psalm 107, verse 8 and 9, it says, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he, God alone, has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. The problem is we live in a world that is filled with things that entice our selfish ambitions. Using even what God has created and designed, we turn to them for selfish purposes. I want you to write this down. Until we pursue the one thing, we will have a constant restlessness for more things. Until we pursue with hunger and righteousness, that craving for God, unless we pursue a deep hunger for God, we will have a constant restlessness for more things. You know, Solomon is considered the wisest man who ever lived, and I also think he's one of the dumbest men that ever lived. Because here's a man who God said, I will give you anything you want. And Solomon says, I just want wisdom. And God says, you know what? That is the wisest thing anyone could ever ask. And because of that, I will make you wise beyond your imagination. But in his life of wisdom, Solomon began to make very unwise choices. He began to marry into pagan religions and began to pursue false gods and even sacrifice you know, uh, make sacrifice to these false idols to the point that God says, you know what? You have abandoned me and your kingdom will never be united again. And after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two because of Solomon's disobedience to God. He was running from God in the latter part of his life. Just before he passed away, he penned a letter known as Ecclesiastes and it's in the Bible. It's a short letter. It's a bit of a downer. But the whole letter is saying, I've done it all. I've done it all. I've had it all. I've, I've experienced every pleasure. I've been with every woman. I've achieved every goal in my life. There's not one thing I haven't had, experienced, owned, or possessed. And he says this. He starts off this gloomy letter with verse 14. He says, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. 
He goes on to say in Ecclesiastes that the pursuit of education is like chasing after wind that you can never catch. You'll never be smart enough. And I denied myself no pleasure, he says, and it only left me empty. He says, I did everything I wanted with nothing to gain. These are all phrases from Ecclesiastes. He says, I worked hard and I amassed a great wealth, but it was all vanity and futile, like chasing after the wind and would all be lost by those who took it over after me. He says, I was the best at many things. I was an expert at many things. This too, he says, was meaningless. And he says, I was even a good person. He says, that was futile. He gets to the end of this downer of a letter in Ecclesiastes and he says, I found what the one thing I should be doing in that is honoring God and pursuing his word. Solomon, he says, I've done it all. But until I pursued the one thing, I was restless for more things. And this is our life. So we say, well, I just need to follow my heart, man. I just need to follow my heart. You know, God, you know, my heart's leading me here. It's leading me there. Well, this is what the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Above every, above everything this world has to offer. Above every person. Above every relationship. Above all things. Your own heart is beyond cure, is sick. He says, who can understand it? Because the jacked up nature of our hearts, they, our heart reveals pursuits that are not always healthy. And our heart reveals sometimes pursuits that are often not in alignment with the will of God. What we need to do is not pursue our heart and follow our heart, but submit our heart to the will of God and let God transform our heart into his heart and will. So the solution is not more entertainment, experiences, trials, people, pleasures, personalities, possibilities, or new appetites, but rather a whole different pursuit altogether. You're going to be more than happy if you hunger and thirst after God's righteousness. You'll be satisfied. So I have a question for you. Uh, where did all this suffering come from then? Why do we suffer? You know, this is going to talk about that myth of happiness. Well, then why do we suffer? Well, here's some reasons why we suffer. The first one is a broken world. Genesis 3 talks about how uh, the first uh, man and woman, Adam and Eve, they, they invited into our life sin, sickness, and sorrow. And since then, uh, we have this disease of selfishness that is driving us to destructive self, uh, uh, selfish behavior. And so because of this brokenness, listen, nature is broken. The universe is broken. Our bodies are broken. The world is broken. This is Genesis 3, a result of the fall. And that's why we have suffering. Another reason we have suffering is it's the consequences of sin. Living outside of God's will. An example of that is in the next verse in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of the glory, uh, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He says, but if you suffer, it should not be because you're a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even a meddler. He says, listen, man, sometimes you suffer because God is using you, and then sometimes you suffer because you're walking in disobedience to God's will for your life, and you're walking in sin. You know meddling, you know what he means there? That means someone who's always in other people's business. Sometimes it's like, man, your life is filled with drama because some of you, you chase drama. 
You just want to know what's happening. You want to get in everybody's business. And so there's always some kind of business happening in your life. And you're always down and depressed. Listen, you're a meddler. And this is a consequence of simple behavior of meddling into other people's problems when you have no solution or help for them. You just want to know what's happening. Some people, they, they live out the consequences of sinful behavior through suffering. And then he says, here's another reason why they're suffering, dumb decisions. Some of you, you have bills you can't pay because you were late on a credit card you should not have had. And so you have an interest charge that is basically making it so you could never pay that bill off. And you're suffering because of that. Some of you, your, your car is in terrible shape because you never changed the oil. That's a dumb decision because you never get a, because you never get a tune-up. I had a friend of mine, uh, he, you know, when I was a young adult, when we were like 19, 20, he used to buy like junk cars. We, had like, we lived in this house together and he, he had six cars at the house. And they were half the time, he just like buying junk cars like for a hundred bucks. We had this, this girl in our church who was like, didn't have a car. He said, like, yeah, you can have one of my cars. The one that really worked, the one that ran, the one he liked, the one that we rode around in. And we were driving around and we saw it on the side of the road. It had caught on fire. <laughs> And she never told him. And we tracked her down. And he's like, what happened? She goes, I don't know. It just caught on fire. Turns out she never put oil in the car. And she just drove it literally until the engine caught on fire. And the whole hood was black. I'm like, that's a, that's a dumb decision. And she suffered for it. And unfortunately, so did my friend. Some of you, your house has fallen apart because you bought a bad house. It was a poor decision. You're in a payment that you can't make with repairs that you can't afford. Or maybe you got fired. Well, because you decided to sleep in that day one too many times. That's a dumb decision. And it resulted in you getting fired and now you're suffering for it. Or maybe you don't get that promotion because honestly, you're not a good worker. You don't work hard. You're not valuable to the team. Well, that's a dumb decision. As a result, you suffer for that. Sometimes we suffer because of Dumb decision. Here's another one. We also suffer because of Satan. Peter says this, and we're going to talk about this in a couple weeks when we get to chapter 5. He says, be alert and sober. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour and attack. The enemy has it out against you if you are a Christian. And so his plan is to disrupt, distract, derail, discourage, and, and inflict on you pain, all right? He's not your friend. And he brings suffering in our life. This next one might surprise you. Where does suffering come from? Well, it also comes from God. This is where some of you are like, I can't buy into that because God loves me only wants me to be loved and happy. See, that's the false assumption that we have. The Bible says clearly, sometimes God will bring suffering. Look what it says in this very chapter. He says, those who suffer according to God's will. You know, I've got these shirts. Last week I did a, a, a sermon on suffering and I was talking about how, you know, how God will sometimes take our suffering and, you know, how when we tie-dye a shirt, they're like, they're like 
stretched and pulled and cramped and rubber bands and they're putting boiling water and all that pain and suffering God can use to make something beautiful. And he makes something beautiful in our life. Romans 8, 28, all things work to good for those who love God according to his purpose. And we think, yes, suffering God can turn it for good. But listen, this is the purpose of God. He will allow and even invite and bring suffering into your life because this is the goal. He doesn't just take suffering and turn it into good. Sometimes it's his will for you to suffer. Like, I don't like this. I don't like this brand of Christianity. It's because you bought into pop culture, Western, narcissistic Christianity and not the Bible. See, there are several times that God doesn't want you happy. I'm going to give you a few reasons when God doesn't want you happy. There's times when God does not want you to be happy. Here's the first one. God doesn't want you to be happy when it causes you to sin. 1 Peter 1.15, he says, But just as he who has called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. But many times we do the opposite of God's word and we do the opposite of God's will. We do what we think will make us happy, what will bring us joy, what will bring us pleasure at that moment for a while, but miserable in the long run. Listen, some of you are married and you might be thinking, well, my wife or my husband doesn't meet my needs and I have needs. Doesn't make me happy anymore. So you look for alternative ways to be happy. Well, I'm just not happy in my marriage anymore. My wife, my husband doesn't make me happy. So I'm going to do this now. I'm going to meet this person. I'm going to engage in this activity. And you know what? Listen, God doesn't want you happy. He wants you faithful. Sometimes he would rather you be unhappy than to be in sin. Some of you, uh, I call it the single sex category. You're like, well, God gave me these desires and he wants me to be happy and I have this desire to be with somebody and, and how can it be wrong? How can it be bad if I love them? And, you know, and, and we, we like each other and it's, and it's consensual. Listen, God doesn't want you happy if it causes you to sin. 1 Peter 4, 14, he goes on, it says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and God rests on you. Verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. That, that rhymes, that's pretty good. Write this down, God doesn't want you happy when the circumstances are not right. If you're going along with the crowd to keep the peace, he doesn't want you happy. If you're going to be silent in the home rather than confront an issue just so that there's not confrontation, just because you want everybody to be happy. I want everybody to be happy. I'm not going to cause any waves. You know, very few people like confrontation, but it's, an, it's a very important part of growing up and being mature. But a lot of times we run from confrontation. We just want to keep the peace because we want everybody happy. We just want to be, listen. If, that's, if that brings a circum, temporary circumstance of peace and happiness, but is not resolving a deep-rooted problem that must be addressed, God doesn't want you happy. You know, I said a minute ago that God ordained sex for marriage, but when you're single, the circumstance is not right. When you're married, that's a right circumstance. But listen, if you're single... That is not the right circumstance, and God would rather you be unhappy, would rather you be alone, would rather you be fired rather than go along with the crowd, rather you be insulted or ridiculed than to be happy. Because he doesn't want you happy 
when the circumstances are not right. First Peter 4.17, he continues, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God or God's house. See, God is working in his people to be an example. Listen, if you're a Christian, you're tested first. If you're not a Christian, you're tested second. But judgment, the test, the challenges of God begin with us. And if it begins with us, what would the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18, uh, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What does that mean, righteous to be saved? The Bible talks about three salvations that happen to a believer. When we are born again, when we say yes to Jesus, we are saved from the power of sin, but we are not saved from the presence of sin. So in our life, we are still fighting the presence of sin and the habits in our life, and God is maturing us. That is called being saved. And then there will come a day when Christ will return, and we will be saved. He came the first time to rescue us spiritually. He's coming the second time to rescue, to rescue us physically. There'll be no more sin, sickness, sorrow, death, or trials after that. But until then, man, it's hard being righteous for God. We are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are being saved through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we will be saved at the day of his return. So when he says in this passage, he says it's hard for the righteous to be saved. He's referring to that process of God maturing us. And let me tell you something, following Jesus is hard. To be righteous, to live for God is hard. There's no, there's no lying about it, no trickery, no enticing words, no tickling of the ears. It's hard. Living a righteous life is hard. I want you to write this down because there's a comparison. He says, there's the righteous who live a hard life. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This is a comparison between humility and pride. Write this down. God doesn't want you happy when it makes you arrogant. He doesn't want you happy if it's going to make you arrogant. Look what I have. Look what I've done. Look at the stuff I've accomplished. Look at the things that I have, have accumulated. Look at my spouse. Look at my husband and my wife. I'm more blessed than you. Don't you wish you had a girlfriend like me? <laughs> it's kind of funny. Nobody in the first service laughed at that. Not a single soul. I go into a song and they're like, huh? All right. Yeah, for those of you that didn't laugh at the song. All right. Don't you wish... <laughs> Your girlfriend was like me, all right? That was the song. I'm not a girlfriend, obviously. Man, I must be special. God must have favor on me. God must really love me. Listen, judgment begins with the house of God. So you know what happens? If, you, if you're a Christian and you develop arrogance and pride, because he loves you and he disciplines his kids out of love, you know what he might do? He might allow you to lose those things to lose those things that you become arrogant and prideful in because he wants to humble you and bring your reliance back to him. God will remove things from a follower to humble and pull your reliance in because judgment begins with the house of God. So don't be surprised, Christian, when you find yourself. I like to say this, either you humble yourself privately or God will often humble you publicly. Right? Because judgment begins with the house of God. God doesn't want you happy 
It's going to make you arrogant. Paul in prison, not happy. He's awaiting his sentence. And by the way, Paul dies eventually in prison, gets his head cut off. But he writes letters while he's in prison awaiting his sentence. And he says this in verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. He says, man, I've been rich and I've been poor. And he says, I know what it's like. He says, I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether I'm fed or hungry, whether living in wealth and population and plenty or in want alone and destitute. He says, I've known the secret. Here's the secret, verse 13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That is not a promise that says you can jump out of an airplane. I know I can do this. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You know, or it's not, because, it's, not, it's not you can win this game. All right, guys, come on. We love Jesus. We can do this. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Come on, let's go there. Ah! You know, this is not a promise of, of wins or guarantees or that you can conquer achievements. This is a promise that you can endure pain. I've found the secret, whether I am blessed or whether I am poor, you know, which you can be blessed when you're poor. I should say, whether I have a lot, whether I'm living in a nice house or living on the street. I know the secret whether I am full and I'm pushing away from the table or I'm just wishing for one crumb from a table. I found the secret. I can endure all things through Christ who gives me strength. You know what the secret is? God is enough. Whether I have a lot, God is enough. Whether I have nothing, God is enough. That's the secret. God is doing something in you. If you miss God's, you'll miss God's best if your goal in life is to be happy when God is wanting to do something in you and through you. Write this down. God is more focused on what happens in you than what happens to you. So focus on what is happening in you. See, he wants you to soar above your sin and your circumstances. God is doing something in you in those storms and trials. It's part of his plan. That's why it goes back. We need this new attitude, verse 1. Because some of you, your attitude is, God, why, why, why? God's like, you know what? Just grow. Learn. Be humble. Press through, press on. It's not always going to be like this. I'm maturing you. God uses trouble and suffering to teach us and build character. He doesn't necessarily create it, but he will often allow it as an opportunity for us to grow. Paul says this in Romans 5, 3 and 4. He says, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And the next verse, and this is hope that does not disappoint. You won't be disappointed with what God's doing. It won't let you down. You won't be at the end of your life going, man, I wished I, uh. man, if you walk in God's will, it doesn't matter what comes at you. You're like, you know what? God made me. That's why I referenced George. I mean, what I saw happening in George was powerful. And what I see happening in some of you as you stand strong in the face of trial, so inspiring, so inspiring. You know, when I, we started off with Greg Staines, man, that story is so inspiring. His trial and pain inspires me to live a life boldly for Christ. So when life isn't happy, what do we do? I'm going to end with this verse. I'm going to pray for you. 
Verse 19, so he says this, in light of this, so then, in light of all this, those who suffer according to God's will, what should we do? Well, you should commit themselves, they should commit themselves to their faithful creator. Mm, Everybody say faithful. He's a faithful God. He's a faithful father. Creator means the one who's responsible for all things. Creator of all, in charge of all, sovereign of all. He's not unaware of what's happening in your life. If you're going through suffering, he says, commit to your faithful creator, the father of all, and continue to do good. Write this down. This is where I want to end. When you're facing a life that's not always happy, press into our good father and keep doing good. Dig your heels in, grab a hold of Jesus, and hold on, hang on, and keep doing what's good. You have a good father. Some of you guys are hurting today. Press into our father. He's a faithful faithful. He won't disappoint you. He won't let you down. He'll never leave you. He'll never abandon you. He's a faithful, faithful God. God does not promise that we will never have trouble, but he does promise to be there and to give you strength in times of trouble. So let's pray. I want to pray for you today. Father, thank you. God, in this room right now, there are those that maybe are hurting today and those that are going through a trial, through a storm. And God, uh, I know that right now, you are present to, to encourage. So I want to pray for some of you today. If you're here today and um, maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you just feel like everything around you is falling in, maybe you feel discouraged or disappointed or heartbroken, maybe you feel... Um, like, like you just, it's just one thing after another and you can barely breathe. You feel like your head's just above water and you're thinking, God, where are you? Where are you? He's saying, I'm here. I'm right here. Hold on. Trust me because I'm making something amazing. And you're honoring me by being faithful. And it's drawing people to Christ when they see you. So if you're one of those Christians right now, will you just reach out to God right now? Say, God, I need you. If you're, if you're that person, maybe you're here going through trial, just talk to God for a minute. Say, say, God, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Will you give me the strength to endure? Will you give me joy? I want to pray also for those of you that, that feel like you're, you're so discouraged that you don't have any joy. And I want to pray that God will give you joy. But before I pray for you, there's a third group of people I want to pray for today. And that is some of you, you're chasing everything but God, and you're empty today. You're empty. That hole in your soul seems to be getting bigger and bigger with everything you put in it. Every person, every experience, every pursuit, and you just can't seem to figure it out. Here's the word for you today. You will only be satisfied in Jesus Christ. So today, will you surrender to Jesus? That's you today in your own words where you say, God, here I am. God, here I am. I give my life to you. Forgive me of my sin. In your own words, 
However you want to say it, God, here's my life. Forgive me my sin. Thank you for dying for me. Your suffering brings life to me. I give you my life. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to be satisfied in you, God. Help me to know what that means. You go ahead and spend some time talking to God, if that's you, and just just talk to him and surrender to him and acknowledge the cross and and that forgiveness that comes with with knowing him and that humility that he's bringing to you right now. And I wanna pray for everybody in this room for the joy of the Lord. So could you just stand up right where you are, particularly if you are just desiring the joy of the Lord today. If you're desiring the joy of the Lord, or uh, if you're not, you know, I, I just want to pray for all of y'all today that you would experience the joy of the Lord. God, I just pray, God, for the people in this room and upstairs, God, God, I pray that we would understand the joy of the Lord that comes by trusting in you, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that this is a joy that comes with knowing we are in the center of your will in our life. And God, no matter what happens, no matter what comes our way, God, I'm not shaken by my circumstances. Will you declare that right now? Just say, God, I will not be shaken by my circumstances. I will trust in you. And I am thankful, God, that when everything falls apart, you are a solid rock. God, I pray for the joy of the Lord. Your life, God. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a, there's a passage that says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, in all things, make your petitions, your requests, pray with thankfulness to God. And it says, and God will give you a peace that surpasses understanding, a joy that doesn't make sense. That's the goal. So tomorrow when people are like, how in the world with everything that's going on in your life can you still have joy? Like it doesn't make any sense, but let me tell you about it because there's one who's bigger than my pain and he's bigger than your pain too. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.